Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Coming up on The Cost of Living. I think that people would be really surprised. Like, how could you forget about money, especially in this day and age when everybody could really use every last dollar they can get their hands on? How could anyone forget about money? It's money. But it does happen. You could actually be forgetting some right now. Hi, I'm Paul Habertrude. Welcome to The Cost of Living. Billions of dollars, yes, billions, are sitting in bank accounts. And that money's getting lonely. Canadians may have forgotten about it. So, do you know where your money is? Also today, look back to the 1980s and buying a house cost roughly two times your annual income. Now, it could be 10 times. And that's just one way life is more expensive. So when the kids say they have it tougher than their parents, they could be right. Up first, a US court just ruled the real estate industry conspired to fix realtor fees. A judge awarded 1.8 billion in damages. The decision could change how houses are bought and sold and not just in the U.S. So, Jen Keane, you used a realtor when you bought your house, yeah? Oh, yeah, of course. How'd it go? Oh, I mean, we got a house in the end. We, we looked at a ton of places, though. And ultimately, it, it, we were the ones who found the house because our realtor took us to see a house, and we were like, hey, what about that one down the block? We like that one. So how did you feel about paying the realtor fees? No, <laughs> I think a lot of people might feel, yeah, you know about realtor fees. And now a class action suit has been filed in Ontario that could change how commissions work across the country. Yeah, and the suit is still a long way from making it to court. But if it gets there and it's successful, it could shake up the industry. Real estate fees could be cut in half, which would be maybe not great for realtors, but buying and selling would then be cheaper for everyone. So let's look at this class action. It's called the Sunderland case. Because a guy named Mark Sunderland sold his house in Toronto, and he thought, hey, something is weird about the way real estate agents get paid. So in Canada, real estate fees are about 5%. Now, every province is different. Every deal has wiggle room. But in general, in a real estate deal, home buyers, home sellers, they both hire their own realtor and then those agents split the eventual commission in half. The Sunderland case says this relationship between buying and selling agents is too cozy. Splitting the commission down the middle sets up a situation that is anti-competitive. Because realtors don't have much incentive to compete and lower their fees. 
Like, what if the selling agent didn't split the commission in half? Instead, they said, hey, buying agent, we'll give you 1% instead of the usual 2.5%. Would realtors still bring around potential buyers to see that house, or would they steer buyers to homes where they'd get a better commission? The Sunderland class action was filed under the Competition Act. David Dunbar is with Caravel Law in Ottawa. He's also the former top lawyer for the Competition Bureau. He's not involved in this case, but he's looked at it and kind of sums it up like this. The poor buyer has no direct relationship basically with the person that's supposed to be representing them. They, they can't negotiate the price. They don't pay them. Like They're very distanced from them in this structure. And then I think that's part of the argument to say, well, look, that's, this is, rises to the level of improper control. Now, is it a criminal conspiracy of control? You know, that, that's going to be their, their, the mountain they're going to have to climb. So the Sunderland case alleges that real estate fees in Canada are being kept artificially high. Dunbar says if this case goes before a judge... They can say, it's crazy that you set up adversaries. They're supposed to be adversaries in the deal, right? The seller and the buyer are supposed to be kind of negotiating on each side and the, the, the brokers for each are supposed to be working for them. And yet the, the structure of the of the actual payment is all rooting through the seller. Like that doesn't make any sense. That's what they say in their pleadings. They say, there's like, why would you cut? Where's the, where's the impetus to cut prices here? A judge just ruled on a similar class action in the U.S. and said, yeah, the industry was price fixing. The court awarded 1.8 billion in damages and more class action suits are on the way. So this ruling is being appealed. But what it could mean is an exodus of realtors from the industry and realtors who work for buyers, they're especially worried. It is not like the old days anymore when real estate agents used to hold all the cards. Now you can go on realtor.ca, you can find a house that you like, look at what other places are selling for in the neighborhood. And then there's the money part of this. Yeah. As house prices have gone up, so have real estate commissions. Look at Toronto 15 years ago. The average home price was $400,000 then. So realtors would make about twenty grand on that sale and split it between them. Well, now the average house price is over a million dollars. It's like $1.1 million. So on that sale, real estate agents are splitting $55,000. So it's no wonder so many new realtors have gotten into the game. They're chasing that money. Just look at the Toronto Real Estate Board. It now has 73,000 licensed realtors. That's up nearly 50% in just the last five years. That's a lot. And if I do some very quick math here, that's one realtor for every 40 people in Toronto. So, so they are all realtored up. They're, they are all realtored up. Now, I think we should let the real estate agents speak for themselves here because if you talk to a realtor, they will tell you they do a lot for that commission. Tanya Eklund has worked for more than two decades selling real estate in Calgary. This is some, for most people the biggest purchase in their life. And so we, we really want to make sure that our buyers are protected. She says buying agents make sure you don't pay too much for a house. They look at the market, help you negotiate a fair price. And that's not all they do. There could be home inspection, there could be financing, there could be a condo doc review. Do they use a condo reader? Do they need a sewer scope because of the age of the home? Do they need asbestos testing? Do they need air quality? Do they need a septic and well inspection? And so we make sure that there are conditions in place to protect the purchaser. And then once the deal closes, we ensure that they have access to proper people to help them close. 
that's a lot of questions that someone, especially a first-time buyer, may not know to ask. And they know about stuff like sewer scopes. We may not want to know about that, you know. She says buying a home isn't easy, right? And it helps to have a real estate agent on your side. I had one a couple of years ago where the buyers didn't think they needed to spend $300 on a sewer scope. And I said, guys, this home was built in the 60s. The the seller has never done one. It's only $300. Well, I I coerced them into doing one and it saved them $15,000. And they wouldn't even thought of one had I not suggested to it. And the sewer line had actually collapsed. And the, the previous sellers had no clue because they didn't ever have any sewer backup or issues. So that's a defense of buying agents. David Dunbar, the competition lawyer, agrees there are good reasons for these fees. And if you step back, the commissions, they serve an even bigger purpose. That 5% is really just the cost of having a market that works. Just like the fee that the, the merchant pays to use a Visa card is the price of having that particular market work, right? Like if I'm going to use a Visa card, the merchant's got to pay 2%. Maybe that gets sort of sewn back into the prices of the things I'm buying. But like facilitation of markets costs money, right? So that's what's happening here. It's a bigger chunk. It's 5%. That's that's more than many other markets. But that's kind of the way it works. Who, who owns that? Who pays that? Well, kind of everybody. Realtors help get complicated financial deals done. So that 5% could be looked at as just the cost of doing business. And there's another thing here. No one is saying realtors shouldn't get paid. The question is the commissions. Are they being kept artificially high? Well, Mark Sunderland says yes, which is why he filed the class action suit. And, and as for where the case stands right now, the defendants asked for it to be dismissed, but a judge has said there is enough here to keep it going. So now the class action filing needs to be certified by a judge, and if that happens, it could go to trial. Now, Dunbar says getting a class action certified, not that hard, but winning the case if it goes to trial. He's got to show full-on, full-bore cartel criminal conspiracy, you know, that People were agreeing, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna control the we're gonna control the price for these uh, for these buyer brokers. That's a, that's not an easy thing to do. That's a that's a very hard uh, you know legal case to make. I think. Did people meet in a smoky room, make plans to keep fees high? Uh, you know, Dunbar says proving collusion like that is tough. It's even tougher to find a smoky room these days, Paul. I mean, so many fewer people smoke. Where's the collusion going to happen? I, I don't know. <laughs> you know. When he looks at it, though, and thinks back, he can't actually remember a class action that was brought under the Competition Act that hasn't settled before it's gone to trial. Even if this case doesn't go anywhere, the issue may still have traction because the price of housing has gone kind of bonkers in Canada and real estate agents have been cashing in on that for years now. And that doesn't sit right with everyone. So now more people are asking questions about the way realtors are paid, whether the system is fair. And the Sunderland case could just be the start of something. The outcome here that maybe people aren't looking for, but that could really happen is that it's such an impetus for policy discussion. It's such an impetus for the, for the, the folks who do real estate policy in the Ontario government to have a look at this and say, oh, like there's a lot of pressure around this to change this. And it would be pretty pro-competitive if you tell a cabinet minister, hey, there's a thing we could do that's really positive for consumers and potentially would put some money in their pockets, the minister is going to be really interested in that. And so that's out there. It's, it's in the air. The topic of how are we structuring this is alive. 
It's alive, Paul. It is, and a lot of people are looking at realtor fees in a way they haven't before. On your Radio and by podcast, this is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Haverschrude. Have you ever put on a coat you haven't worn since last winter? You reach into the pocket and... What do we have here? A $20 bill? Ha <laughs> ha! Found money. Big win. Well, what if it was even bigger? Because Canadians, sharp as we are, we can also be absent-minded. We've actually forgotten about billions of dollars. And our producer, Danielle Nerman, says some of that money could be yours. Kathy McDermott hadn't heard from her ex-husband in years. Then one day, he called, out of the blue, told her she had some free money to claim. She was like, yeah, right. And I went, oh, you're kidding me. Do you really think this is real or is this a scam? It was real. Kathy invested some money more than 20 years ago. At the time, she was living in British Columbia. Then she moved to the Middle East, then back to Alberta. So her bank lost track of her. When they finally sent me the statement, because it's like a printed statement of when you invested, and I said, oh, yeah, I remember that now. (laughs) Now, if you're thinking, how could you forget about money, especially in this day and age when everybody could really use every last dollar they can get their hands on, Marissa Solos is with the Financial and Consumer Services Commission of New Brunswick. She says it's actually pretty easy to lose track of money. You left a job, but maybe never returned to receive your last paycheck. Or if there's a relative who passed on, leaving an estate, but they weren't able to locate the heirs. Overpayments or refunds, um, security deposits. Or you received a check in the mail that you didn't cash. This fall, New Brunswick launched Funds Finder NB, a program that helps people find and claim their forgotten dollars. BC, Alberta, and Quebec have similar initiatives, and so does the Bank of Canada. It collects any money that's been sitting untouched in bank accounts for more than a decade. Add up all the cash Canadians have left behind, and it's a whopping $2 billion. And some of that money has been sitting around forever. The oldest account, an estate worth about 200 bucks, dates back to the 1850s. The biggest payout happened in Quebec about 10 years ago. Someone walked away with roughly $4 million. If you think you've lost track of some of your money, Google Unclaimed Property Canada. Then, punch your name into the various databases. You can search for yourself. You can search, you know, friends and family. So if you're trying to get into the good books with somebody, you could always search their name and see if there's some forgotten funds there you could let them know about. I did this for myself, my parents, my siblings, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, my friends, my best friend's boyfriend. Right now, the largest single unclaimed balance is nearly $2 million. Now, most people who go looking for forgotten money don't get that kind of windfall. But Kathy McDermott 
did pretty well on that investment she forgot. And after a battle with cancer, she decided to take the money and live a little. So I thought, to heck with it. Um, my sister lives in England, so I phoned her and I said, guess what? You're coming to Canada and we're going to Las Vegas. Kathy did some gambling in Vegas, played the slots. So did she make any return on that investment? Uh, no. <laughs> no. For The Cost of Living, I'm Danielle Nerman. That there were more than the 24 hours in the day Even if there were 40 more I wouldn't sleep a minute away Oh, there's blackjack and poker and the roulette wheel A fortune won and lost on every deal All you need is strong heart and a nerve steel Viva Las Vegas Viva I'm Keith MacArthur. Unlocking Bryson's Brain is a podcast about my son, the rare disease that keeps him from walking or talking. I mean, Bryson's perfect, but his life is really hard. And our family's search for a cure. Oh my gosh, maybe science is ready for this. It's part memoir, part medical mystery. We can do just about anything. Modifying DNA. My heart and my throat. Cure is controversial. Unlocking Bryson's Brain. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts kids these days. Am I right? Always complaining on their Instagram and their TikTok. I'm working like three jobs right now. Like I got out of university like last year in December and I have been grinding it out. I can't afford to move out. I'm 24. Our rent is $3,300 a month. Like no utilities, just $3,300. Gas is going up 10 cents tonight, boy. And my, my milk alone went up $3, but... Everything is fine. Gen Zs and millennials figure the economic realities of today are giving them a rough ride. But, you know, every generation thinks they have it tough. In my day, we walked to school, uphill both ways, in the snow, in summer. So, who has it right? Rob Carrick is the personal finance columnist at The Globe and Mail. He also co-hosts a podcast for 20 to 40-something Canadians called Stress Test. Hi, Rob. Hi, Paul. So, Rob, are young adults today really facing a tougher road? You know, I I could point to a few indicators that says, yes, they are. Now, I know older generations will give me a lot of static on that. I know they had their challenges, but I do think today's younger generation faces some unique challenges that makes me wonder if they're going to be as prosperous as their parents were. Well, why? Like, if you look back, what, 30, 40 years, what's happened in that time that, that makes this different for, for you know, the youth today? You know, I've actually taken a look at this using myself as an example. And a couple of the things that came up were tuition fees have risen a lot, much more than the inflation rate. Uh, income growth up until very least recently was quite weak. But I think the biggest difference is the cost of housing. It is just astronomically expensive for young people to buy a house today. You know, when I graduated from university, uh, house was roughly one, two, three times your income, two or three, let's say, times your income. Today, it could easily be six or seven plus times your income. It is just 
phenomenally expensive to buy a house. The prices are high. The mortgage rates are comparatively high, not as high as the 1980s, but boy, our house prices are sure a lot lower. And we're, we're a lot lower then. I just think the combined load of housing is just phenomenally more um, unendurable today than it was back then. Well, if you think about that, two times your income you know, 40 years ago, 10 times your income today, how does that show up for people who you know, are just trying to live? All your money goes to housing. And that's an exaggeration. Um, but it does mean that you have less slack to um, cover expenses and emergencies. So maybe you have to go into debt to cover those. It means you're able to spend less money in the economy, which makes me wonder how we're going to pull out of the recession that's most likely coming. And it also means that you have less money to save for retirement. And that's going to be a big factor because I think a lot of young people today don't have pensions and it's going to be on them to cover their retirement savings. So then where does this leave this generation? Because you're painting kind of a dire picture here. I mean, do they have moves? Do they have options? Their options are to find a housing situation that suits them budget-wise. And so we see a lot of people already coping, doing smart things. You know, they're buying houses with friends and family members. Multi-generational housing is happening. Shared expenses works really well. They're showing uh, a willingness that I haven't seen before to move to cities where, uh, where housing is more affordable. I think some of them will just end up being lifelong renters and uh, they'll save money that way. Um, they are adapting, um, but the dream of everybody having their own big house, that may need some adjustment. Okay, well, the flip side of houses being expensive for younger people are older people who might own houses. You know, they're sitting on all this wealth in, the, in these expensive houses. What does this kind of dynamic mean for, for older generations? Well, you know, I do wonder if we're going to get to a point where all the people who own houses and have built up tons of equity and are sitting on top of this mountain and are thinking, I've got all this wealth, who's going to buy their houses? I do wonder if we're going to get to a pricing point where affordability is going to decline and we're going to have prices pull back a fair bit. Now, that is some hope for younger people. If we do get a price pullback and interest rates come down, as they probably will do in 2024, that might open up a window of affordability. But that's going to be a bit of a takeaway for the older generation who already owns. But I, I given how much equity they've accumulated in the past 10, 20 years, I, I think giving up a little could be a sort of a fair exchange to help the younger generation. You know, and, and this dynamic, again, has caused some some intergenerational friction. You know, you got jokes like, okay, boomer. Are there consequences to this kind of inequality? Is there, is there social friction that, that, that can happen here when there is this discrepancy between generations? Well, I think it's already brewing. I don't think it's a tidal wave of resentment, but it, it's, it's percolating out there. I would not be surprised to see housing affordability be a substantial issue in the next federal election. And um, I also wonder what the implications are for the economy. You know, if people are um, tying up all their wealth in housing, how do they spend the money that they need to, uh, to keep the economy moving? I mean, consumer spending is a huge part of this economy, and the housing market's a huge part of the economy. We have an economic output that is dependent on all the economic activity produced when, produced when houses are bought and sold and furnished and repaired and renovated. And so what about this wealth transfer? I mean, there's been a lot of talk about all this wealth that is tied up in, in houses, and you're saying you're not entirely sure how it comes out. But uh, have, you, have you talked to people about how this wealth transfer might happen? Well, it's already happening to some extent. I mean, one of, the, one of the reasons why housing was able to just keep rising and rising and rising, even though affordability was plummeting, was a lot of parents were giving their adult kids money for down payments. 
that's a huge factor in, in the housing market in, you know, in the past few years. Uh, we're talking billions of dollars. So that wealth transfer is already happening and it will continue to happen. Boomers and seniors are, um, are increasingly waking up to the idea of, of giving money to their kids while, while they're alive rather than waiting, waiting to do it in their wills. So I do think there is more wealth that's going to trickle down. But one thing we have to remember about this wealth transfer is that while, there's, while boomers and older generations are sitting on a lot of wealth equity in their homes, et cetera, they're living longer and longer and that there are going to be considerable costs for long-term care. And I wonder if some of this wealth transfer money is going to be used by the parents themselves uh, for their retirement and for their health care. So I don't, I mean, this big avalanche of money flowing downhill to, to younger generations, I, it may not be quite as strong as some people are forecasting. I also wonder if there's something of a, of a structural inequality here, Rob, because I think StatsCan just came out with a report that said, if your parents owned a house and if their parents owned a house, then you're much more likely to own a house, obviously, because that wealth just starts to accumulate. So it's kind of like a rich get rich gets richer situation. But what about the people who sort of aren't on that ladder? Yeah, that same report, I think, said that if you own multiple properties, your kids are even more likely to get into the housing market. No, there's no question. We're, we're creating sort of a wealth feedback loop. If you're in the housing market, your uh, your descendants are very likely to follow in your footsteps. But if you're not, it's going to be very difficult for them to get in. There's just no question about that. I mean, I think that's going to be uh, something that governments have to increasingly grapple with. It's not just building more houses and more condos and more rental units. It's building more affordable things that young people can get into and uh, feel satisfied. What do you think? Where does this leave the Canadian dream then? Like the idea that every generation is going to do just a little bit better than their parents? Well, you know, I think I think the Canadian dream is in flux right now and needs to be redefined. You know, I mean, the Canadian dream is very much focused on everybody owning their own house. And I think we're going to have a high ownership rate in Canada. Uh, I, I just think that's a, that's a Canadian value. We will continue to do so, but there might be some adjustments on that and some rethinking about how it works. And people may think that I'm going to uh, build wealth in other ways. I'll rent and I'll do a lot of investing or I'll invest in my career or that sort of thing. Um, I, 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 I wouldn't want to close the door on rising prosperity. It could happen, but I... Um, you know, I've been reading reports in the United States about uh, younger people perhaps not making as much as their parents. That's going to be very common. And I think we're going to be fighting that trend here as well. Is there a way to even the playing field for younger generations, you know, make it easier for young people to get ahead? I mean, you've mentioned a couple times that that government might have a role to play in this. Well... You know, I mean, one thing that one thing the federal government's done is it's it's uh, made it a lot easier and cheaper to get a student loan, and they've relaxed the terms. So, if you want to get the education that will help you build a career that can generate significant income, at least the federal side of the lending process has been the cost has been reduced. I think that's a pretty big thing. Um, they've also offered um, a program of where it works towards $10 a day daycare. So if you're fortunate enough to be able to land a $10 a day daycare spot, well, you've got a huge cost of, of living reduced down to the bone right there. So those are two, uh, two ways government has done that. And I think they're going to need to continue to think about ways to lighten the load. It could be tax breaks. It could be um, government subsidies in some form or another. Um, but I do think government's are looking at the cost on young families and young adults, and they're trying to act strategically, and we're going to need more of that. Rob Carrick, thanks for all that. No problem. Rob Carrick is the personal finance columnist at The Globe and Mail.
That's the show for this week. The Cost of Living is based in Calgary. The show is produced by Daniel Nerman, Ellis Cho, and Jennifer Keene, with help from Caroline, the perennial millennial, Ferris. Our executive producer is Tracy Johnson. I'm Paul Haverschrude. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.